So, okay, turn to Daniel chapter 4, and we're in the 600s and the 500s B.C., and uh, that's where we are. I like to orient myself uh, in the Bible. I think if you do that every time you start reading the Bible, uh, like for instance, do you know the difference between the years of Joshua and Daniel? What is the difference? Who comes first? Who comes second? You start learning that, buddy, and you're going to start orienting yourself to the Old Testament. You really will. So I always like to remember where we are. Here's where we are, though. The uh, southern kingdom of Israel or Judah, the southern kingdom uh, of Judah has been taken out by the Babylonians to exile. That means they've been taken from the area of Judah several hundred miles away and they're living in Babylon. Now there's three at least, probably more, but three biblical prophets that are doing their job while the exiles uh, are in Babylon. That's Daniel. He's in the political courts doing ministry and prophecy. There's Ezekiel. Ezekiel's with the people who are in Babylon, and he keeps prophesying to them. But there's one other, and this is touching to me. There's one called Jeremiah. You may have heard him, the weeping prophet. And the weeping prophet is in still in Judah area, all those hundred, he's with this remnant who weren't taken, sort of the poor and the sickly, and Jeremiah's there caring for them by God's providence and sovereignty. To me, that's touching. God doesn't forget his remnant. He's got all the bases covered. Do you see that? Even when it seems like catastrophe is happening, God has the bases covered. And we're going to learn that in a big way here today. Now, I've preached on this several times, but I'm going to read it to you again or describe it to you again. We're going to learn today again about the sovereignty of God. And we're going to learn about the relationship between repentance and sovereignty. Because, see, we live in a country that's very individualistic, cowboy mentality. Pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, make your own universe, get yourself a kingdom yourself, and build it so that when you live afar off to that grand and glorious day called retirement, America, you can just sit around and move and golf and vacation and plan and beach and everything's going to be fantastic. And the problem is that our hearts yearn for God to worship the Lord. That's what Ecclesiastes tells us. And so just like the country song, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. We're looking by building our kingdom, and the Lord says the only way you're ever going to be really satisfied in life, the only way is if you build my kingdom. If you pour out your life for what's happening in the kingdom of God, for you to love people, the lost and the lonely, and to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, to pour out your life, there's where you're satisfied. And that's what we're going to learn about today. And God uh, does an amazing thing here in chapter 4. He takes this pagan Gentile king 
but really more than a king. I mean, this is the ruler of all rulers, probably that there's ever been ever in the history of the world. There's this man named Nebuchadnezzar, and he has created this place called the Great Babylon or Babylon, and he's created this city. And I could trot out and put up here um, uh, all the statistics right here on the screen for you and show you, and, but I'm going to do it for memory, and here's why because I'm not really that organized. (laughs) But here's the deal. I mean, he great made this city. He had this wife who came from an area in Babylon where there were sort of hills or mountains. And so he created this 11-mile long uh, wall. It was a double wall, and it said that on the walls, on top of the walls, six chariots could fit together. It was a total, um, when you, what is this when you do the whole thing, circumference of 26-mile walled city. And inside the city, I told you, his wife loved mountains. So guess what he did? He made like a mountain retreat with full-on mountains inside the city. You know what else he did? He created a game preserve inside the city, inside those walls, so he could go and do his hunting. Uh, the, the gates are extravagant and huge and big, and you know this. He, they called it the eighth wonder of the world. He had hanging gardens because his wife, again, loved the outdoors. When they found some brick from this city, and on every brick they've ever found, there's a stamp in the brick with his name on it and about how great he was in creating the city. Isn't that interesting? So this is a unique character in history, and he came and interacted with God's people. What did he do? He ordered his uh, troops, his, his army, to take out the Judah the people from Judah, in three separate waves, ready? 605 B.C., wave number one, that's when Daniel went. 597 B, wave number two, that's when Ezekiel went. And the death blow, finally, the third wave, it was the death blow, 586 B.C. It's the number one date you should know. Here's what you should do. You should take your Bible where it says Old Testament, say, North Star, (laughs) Write a little star. I'm terrible at making stars, by the way. But anyway, make a little star, the North Star, the the North Star date of the Old Testament. If you know and understand this date, it unlocks much of your understanding of the Old Testament, and that's 586 B.C. That's when the Babylonians came into the area of Jerusalem and wrecked the temple and the city and murdered people and took out many of them. 586 BC. So we are now, after this probably, after this time of 586 BC, we're with Daniel. And uh, we saw in the first chapter how Daniel and his friends stood up in a culture that wanted to convert them to a pagan religion. We talked about that. In number two, uh, chapter two, we uh, see Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the gold head and so forth, the different metals down the body. And we talked and started to understand what that image was. It was a picture of the succeeding 
uh, kingdoms that were first going to tackle Babylon, and then in comes the Mede and the Persians, and then comes the Greeks, and then comes the Romans. And then, importantly, well, so anyway, so what we're, what we're seeing there is a picture of what's going to happen from the 6th century B.C., all the way until the time that Jesus comes again and establishes his kingdom. And how do you know that? Well, because in chapter 2, we talked about the smiting stone or the smashing stone that's going to come and smash the feet of this idol and then grow into a kingdom itself. And if you weren't here for that, go and get the tape or listen online. And... You know, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and in that dream, remember, he told the soothsayers and the magicians of his day, here's what you got to do. Not only do you have to interpret the dream for me, but you got to tell me what the dream is. So I'm not going to tell you the dream. And remember, Daniel was the only one who could really sort of do that. Remember that? And so Daniel and his friends were promoted, and I want to call your attention to chapter 2, verse 4. After all that occurred, the king answered Daniel and said, watch this. This is important for today's story. You know, sometimes in here, we have to do surgery. And really, I guess all the time, because the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. But if there's ever a day we had to do surgery, today's the day we got to do surgery. And here's why. Because a lot of us are coasting along, going to church, checking things off, doing things in forma. And we have no reality of the presence of God in our life. We're charmed with God. We like the things God does. But we really just want to sort of keep him at bay. Because if we don't keep him at bay, he might ask us to, he might convict us of something we don't want to be convicted of. He might ask something of us we don't want to be asked. So we just want to sort of keep him at bay. So we have a form of God, but we don't really have the reality of God in our life. And I'm afraid the entire American church, or much of the American church, let's say it that way, much of the American church is going along like that. And so today, we've got to do surgery, and we've got to, and I'm going to ask you and me to do something here, to pray to the Lord and ask him to show you where it is you're like Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm like Nebuchadnezzar. Because... Look here, he says, truly your God is the God of gods in verse 4, or excuse me, 47. (laughs) You're going to have to forgive me. Can I tell you something about my life right now? I've had allergic reaction yesterday to my medicine that I put in my eyes. Don't feel sorry for me. The Lord's going to work it out, but I can hardly see today. (laughs) There's tears coming down. So I'm crying, but I'm not really crying, okay? Uh, and so when I, if I say four or 42 or 47, uh, just go with it. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, 47 chapter two, truly King answered Daniel and said, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of Kings and a revealer of secrets. Since you could reveal this secret. When Daniel told him about this dream, he went, Whoa, your God's special. He liked 
It was sort of a relief, even though it was bad news. Finally, somebody, and he recognized the wisdom of Daniel and his friends, and he said, wow, your God's pretty special. See, here's the problem, though. I think a lot of people that sit in churches week after week say the same thing and think they're okay. Because watch, then in chapter 3, you remember this, there, in response he says, well, you're pretty special, but... I'm going to make myself an image of gold. And he just, it's like a competing image against the one that was in chapter two, against, against the dream. He creates an, an image, this high image of himself. And instead of just being gold at the top, which represented Babylon, he made the whole thing gold. And he asked people to bow down. As soon as I strike up the band, Nebuchadnezzar said, or play the music, everybody around that I've invited here need to bow down. And it was brought to his attention that Daniel's friends didn't bow down. And they said this, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't really need to answer you in this matter. That's what the friends said. And they did it respectfully. Probably not the way I would do it. But anyway, they did it respectfully. If that is the case, our God whom we serve, verse 17 of chapter 3, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he'll deliver us from our hand, O king. See, they were, look at this. This goes into what we're going to talk about today. They go, My, our God is able. We should make that a song. Our God is able. And then they said this, and it wasn't a lack of faith, but they said this. And they said, but if, <laughs> but if he doesn't, if he kills us in there, he's still on the throne, the sovereignty of God. They trusted in the sovereignty of God. In other words, they knew and understood that God knew best. And they were okay with that. Not okay, they were rejoicing in it. What is the providence of God? It's his constant care for, his absolute rule over all creation for his own glory and the good of his people, Jerry Bridges writes. A pocket handbook called the Shaw Pocket Handbook writes that sovereignty is used to describe the fact that God is the supreme ruler of everything. He created the world, all that's in it. He sustains the entire created order and existence. He guides the affairs of men, human beings, and nations. He providentially interacts with all that takes place. He works for the good of the wor world and finally will bring all things to a satisfactory conclusion. And I could go on. I've got like 10 pages on the sovereignty of God. I won't do it to you. But do you see that these people, the friends of Daniel, said, but if not... Let it be known to you that we don't serve your gods, nor will we worship or bow down. Interesting. And you know the story. When they threw him, them into the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar sees four people in there, not three people in there. And the fourth person was Jesus in the fire. And he was astounded. Nebuchadnezzar, watch. Watch this. Nebuchadnezzar was so blown away by it, he said this, uh, again, trying to figure out the letters or the numbers. Therefore, verse 29, I make a decree 
that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap. Because, watch, there is no other God who can deliver like this, which is sort of a good thing that he says. There's nobody like this God. But it's sort of an interesting way to put it because look what Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's doing for God. Nebuchadnezzar actually thinks he's protecting God himself. Catch that. He's saying, look, if I make a degree that anybody speaks against this God, I'll handle it. Did you catch that? Because many people still live their Christian life just like that. I'll stand up for God. I'll post everything on Facebook. He needs his honor defended by me. I'm going to put it on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram, and everybody's going to listen to me about who my God is. And of course, yes, we're to proclaim the goodness of God. But I got news for you. He doesn't need my protection. So we see here a guy, Nebuchadnezzar, who's gone through these several things, and he's wowed by the Lord. He's charmed by the Lord. He likes the goodness of God. But he still hasn't, watch, watch, and this is where you got to be honest with yourself and myself. We have to be honest with ourselves right here. But he still hasn't surrendered his life to the Lord. And I want you to remember something from the New Testament. In 2 Peter 3, 9 so fascinating. We always say the verse, but we forget the context in which the verse is said. It's in the, it's in the um, context of future end times things. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. Uh, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All, all. It's even more plain in 1 Timothy 2.4. His desire is that all men shall be saved, or women, all people. You say, well, that's well and good, but you don't understand the political people I don't like. You don't understand the people in my world who bug me to no end. You don't understand all that. So I'm going to keep on protecting the Lord myself and running my own crusades. Here we see in this chapter, I want you to see something. I want you to see that we must give it up. Our right to rule our own life. We must. The Bible says... That he is the captain of our salvation. You quit acting like he's your butler. Let's quit acting like he's our butler. He's the captain of our salvation. He rules and reigns, not me. And 
I don't, we don't want to be people who just like the Lord and like the things he does. To be in the family of God, we surrender our lives. The Bible says, Jesus says, watch, we're to deny ourselves. And you read that, and it's not really that big a deal, but it's the biggest of all deals. When we deny ourselves, we're saying we're trusting in the supremacy of God. He knows best. I'm serving him. Not only am I denying myself, I'm going to actually take up a cross. In other words, I'm going to die to myself and live for you. So here's what I would ask all of us. Are we just fooling ourselves and playing church? Or are we surrendering our lives for Christ? Look at this. I want you to see, this is not a guilt sermon. You know why it's not a guilt sermon? Because the grace and mercy of God would do anything for one person, Nebuchadnezzar, who when you look at his life, you'd go, (laughs) humanly you'd say, he's beyond hope. No way. I'm giving up on him. That's what we'd say humanly. God says, I'm pursuing him. I'm going to give him every opportunity because it's my desire that all men be saved. Watch this. So Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Uh, I want you to flip over to verse 36. Actually, verse 37. See, got me again. (laughs) It says this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride... He's able to put down surgery, surgery. Why did I read you that, those first three verses and then the last verse? The reason I read you that is because those are the bookends. Apparently, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had an experience that you're going to read about here, and it affected, listen, folks, it affected his mental health his spiritual health, his emotional health. But what's sandwiched between that story is the opening lines telling you why Nebuchadnezzar wrote this or made this decree, and then at the end we see why he made this decree. But in the middle is his testimony. And he wrote it, watch this, and then Daniel compiled it at the request or at the guidance of the Holy Spirit and put it right here in the inspired word of God so that we have, amazingly, a testimony written out by somebody who converted to the one true and living God who was a pagan, autocratic, mean, evil dictator or worse. I don't even know the words. 
so that you have his testimony right here. But what's interesting about this, if you're redeemed of the Lord, Psalm 107, 1 and 2 that we read at the beginning, you could write this about you. There's something that you have, your story, where God brought you away out of the kingdom of darkness and sat you in the kingdom of the son of his love in his light. Isn't that great? So there's a tendency here to read about Nebuchadnezzar and go, look how bad he was. And yes, look at his life and learn the lessons, but maybe you should be going like this. So here, he reads it. How great are his signs, verse 3. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar started, there's, there's something that happened to Nebuchadnezzar that made him believe and trust and convert and surrender to the sovereignty of God. And he must have had to have repented of wanting to control life himself. Because if you ever had more of a control freak in your life, tell me about him. Or if you've ever encountered a, more of a control freak, it's, it's him. He ruled everything in that city and beyond. So his kingdom here is, and his dominion is from generation to generation. See, he's talking sovereignty right here. Watch this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. Oh, by the way, let's take a little rabbit trail. When do we run into trouble in the Christian life? When do we run into trouble in the Christian life? It's when everything is going good. I had this experience last weekend coming back from San Diego. There I am, I've got three and a half, four hours from Las Vegas to, uh, uh, to Pittsburgh, and uh, oh, just, you know, for me, w delightful, just to read a book. That just, man, that just is amazing. So I had my pick, I had my book out, and I'm reading away, and it's, you know, and, and then all of a sudden, this stupid little thing called turbulence happened, and the plane just went, Phoom! And my wife, nothing bothers her about turbulence. I mean, she just sit there and, re you know, watch, read. I'm like, what? And then for about the next 10 minutes, I mean, you ever been on one of those planes? Boom, 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 boom. You're like, come on, dude, get to the right spot. Come on, let's go down, up, something. I can't go to Pittsburgh like this. But here's the other thing that happened to me, man, was I praying. Oh, Lord. I'm happy to come be with you, but just not this way. But isn't that funny? When everything's going good, here I am just doing my own thing. <laughs> Boom! The turbulence hits and I'm running to the Lord. It's the same thing here. Nebuchadnezzar is resting in his house and flourishing in his palace. Things are going good, wonderful. He's already seen and been impressed. I took you to the places before about the one true and living God. And I mean, he's already been told now the Medes and the Persians are coming for you. But you know, things are going good and time went on. And you know, he heard from the Lord through Daniel, but uh, 
Maybe it won't come to pass because nothing's happened so far. And everything's going great. My, my kingdom's great. I'm flourishing. I'm at peace. By the way, flourishing there in the Aramaic, may I remind you, because from the end of chapter 2 through chapter 7, this is written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. The words here are talking about uh, vegetation, garden. Now, that's interesting because he has a dream about himself being a tree. But anyway, he's flourishing in his palace, and I saw a dream which made me afraid. It troubled him. It bothered him. Let me take you over to the book of Job. Some people scared of it, I hear, you see. Poor Job. And one of his friends is contradicting him in uh, chapter 33. And the problem with Job's friends is they oftentimes said truth at the wrong time. I'm just going to leave that there for you folks. There's a way to tell people hard things, folks, but there's a way to tell it in love. And you don't have to prove your point and get your way when you're telling truth. You can be both loving and truthful at the same time. You can be both truthful and loving at the same time. Job's friends never understood that. But they did say something true here in Job 33, verse 14. Listen to this. For God may speak in one way or in another, verse 14 of Job 33. Uh, Yet man does not perceive it. Hmm, God's been speaking to me, but I'm not paying attention. Uh, In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from men. Ooh, boy. The lengths and the depths and the avenues that the Lord will go to turn us around. Watch this. Even when we think we're thrilled with God, it's okay to be thrilled with God. Thank goodness we're thrilled with God. But God needs you to surrender and repent to his sovereignty. And here, look at the things that the Lord did for one man, a man that you and I would go on CNN, they'd stick up, uh, or Fox, don't get mad at me. They'd stick a microphone up and say, hey, what do you think about Nebuchadnezzar? Oh, it'd be our chance. Boom! Nebuchadnezzar would get it right there on national TV. Think about it. He's killed my friends. I haven't seen my mom Daniel might think, in 30, 40 years, he took me from my family. He killed my friends. He destroyed my city. He took the materials out of the temple and brought them up to Babylon. He's keeping our people up in Babylon. He's a mean, autocratic, evil guy, and I want you to know it. I want you to just see this. You never see Daniel, ever do that. In fact, I think Daniel loves Nebuchadnezzar. He's been showed 
many times the goodness of God. He was shown, you know, through the interpretations of the dreams. He was shown through the fiery furnace. He's in a place of comfort and he's not paying attention even though he knows. And Job tells us that God will do anything to get after people. 2 Peter 3, uh, uh, 9, I read to you. 1 Timothy 2, 4, God is interested in people being saved. And he's kind and loving and he comes after people, but he's also truthful. So much so that he made this person afraid when he sent a dream, and the thoughts on his bed and the visions of his head troubled him, Nebuchadnezzar writes. Therefore, I issued a decree, verse 6, oh man, I'm improving, to, to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. See, that's another reason why I know he's not surrendered his life to, uh, to God. It's the reason you know. Because in the prior dream, his dream interpreters were useless. But he's holding on to those last vestiges of hope that man and his wisdom can solve all his problems. You catching that? He knows Daniel's the answer. He doesn't have to think about it or pray about it. He's got the evidence. And yet, he says, bring in the people again. We're going to try again. We're going to try again. It's just like us. We have not because we don't ask. We keep just uh, hitting our heads against the wall, doing human things when we're called to something else, to the divine. We need God's wisdom, not human wisdom. And so did Nebuchadnezzar. The magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, which we talked about were the wise men, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream. But they did not make known to me its interpretation. Now, just... File that away for one second. When you read what the dream was, I wasn't there, and I don't even need the rest of the story, and I'm saying you don't either. In other words, the dream was plain, what God was trying to communicate to Nebuchadnezzar. So, look, these guys were like, oh, we can't do it. We're just, I don't know. Well, I think it's they wouldn't do it, <laughs> which gives us another lesson. It's always the best it's always best to tell people the truth. Like you know when you're at the Christmas party and someone says, "Hey, uh George, hope there's no George in here, but anyway, hey George. I think I know you're religious. But you wouldn't be so narrow-minded to say that Jesus is the only way, right?" And now you're at the fork in the road. What do you do? <laughs> well, you do tell them the truth, but some people sometimes make mistakes. And here, we know that the Bible tells us to speak the truth in love, but love and truth. And here, they wouldn't tell that to them. The, the, his own people wouldn't tell him the truth. But at last, Daniel came before me. Now, Daniel was renamed by Nebuchadnezzar, and you're going to see it here. His name was Belteshazzar. Uh, that means, Bel is my God. It was one of the Babylonian gods. But here, notice, the guy who renamed him Belteshazzar 
still kept calling him Daniel. Because Daniel means God is my judge. And he knew that there was a supernatural power that Daniel had from the one true and living God. It was powerful. What does the Bible tell us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Do you guys know that? If you don't know that by heart, uh, know that by heart. Go to learn that by heart. It says this, but you shall receive power, dunamis, dunamis in the Greek, dynamite. Your life is going to be like spiritual dynamite, and that's a good thing. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall, watch, I want you to see this. I want you to circle it. It doesn't say, although you do do this, it doesn't say you shall witness, which sometimes is how I, how I re-quote that verse. You shall witness of me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. You are to witness, but I want you to see one other thing. You're to be a witness, and there's a difference. One is you're explaining who, the God, uh, who God is, but the other is your life is a memorial of God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. You get it? And here, he chooses to keep calling him Daniel. Watch this, because he sees the power in Daniel's life. There's something about him. He's powerful. He's got power. And every time I ask him about it, he deflects, and he says it's the power from the one great and most high, God. It's from the Lord. It's coming through him. It's, it's the Lord living through Daniel. He's powerful. And I started this teaching by saying, but guys, gals, listen, many of us don't want to serve a powerful God. What do I mean? There's a pastor named Mark Hitchcock. He says this about this verse. No, we don't want a powerful God. We want an ordinary God. What do you mean we want an ordinary God? We want a God who loves us this way. Or we want to love the God who gives us rights, but doesn't want to make any demands on us. An ordinary God. We want a God who loves what we love, instead of asking us to love what he loves. An ordinary God. We want a God who leaves us alone until we absolutely positively need him, an ordinary God. We want a God, and oh man, I'm almost going to cry. Well, I am crying, so. We want a God who always excuses our sin, an ordinary God. See, that's the problem. That's, not, that's a problem for us because that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is one who is the ruler of all the rulers. The king of all nations who can set up kingdoms and bring them down. And if he can set up kingdoms and bring them down, he can certainly do what he wants to do in our lives. Amen? So he calls him Daniel. Daniel. Because he recognizes the power in your life. And 
or in his life. And I just want you to know that's, that's the same power in Daniel, in Paul, the same power that was in Paul. You look at Paul and you go, wow, what a saint. The same power that's in Paul, the resurrection power of God lives in you as a born-again, spirit-filled Christian. He's looking for men and women, boys and girls, to do great things for him. Not great things so you can brag, but through you and through your life, he wants to do great things. But the problem is, I'm convinced we walk around like Nebuchadnezzar. We're charmed with God. We think he's a good God. We like the stuff he does, but we want him just to be ordinary. So he won't bother us too much. Only when we need him, we can take him off the shelf. And that's not the God that we encounter here in chapter 4. So Daniel came before me. This, uh, his name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is, or in him is the spirit of the holy God. See that? Power. And I told the dream before him saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you. Power. And no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. And these were the visions of my head while on my bed. Here it is. Here comes the dream. Daniel, you ready to hear it? Here's the dream. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. Now don't get confused. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream prior, but this is not the same dream. He's having a second dream that he's asking Daniel to interpret. It's not the same one. Here, it's a tree in the midst of the earth. Oftentimes in the Bible, trees represent kingdoms. And a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great, and the tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said this. Now, I'm convinced this is an angel. And the reason I think it's an angel is... In 1 Peter 1, verse 12, there's this amazing, again, by the way, set in the uh, environment of prophecy. It tells us, this is so wonderful, that angels are in heaven peering over, watching what God does with men and women. The salvation, the redemption. They're peering over. In other words, they look into the things that God is doing. It says they look into it. They're what? Watchers. So I'm convinced this is an angel. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher or a holy one, an angel, coming down from heaven. He cried and said thus, watch, chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. In the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Now watch this subtle thing that happens right here. Watch this. 
it turns from being a tree, this dream, to being a man. Watch. And let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. So it's obvious when you read this what's happening here. You don't have to be a great wise person. I mean, I can even do it. Uh, it's talking, the dream is about Nebuchadnezzar himself and his kingdom, his kingdom that he built, he thinks. Because he's been charmed by God. You've seen that. He's saying, I still need to protect you, God. But you know what, God? I, I have built this amazing kingdom. I've built it. And I'm so glad you've blessed it, but I've built it. And so I can keep caring for it. And I will keep caring for it. And even though I've heard some prophecy that some other kingdom is coming to knock us off, how could they knock us off? This place is amazing what we've built or what I've built. We're feeding people. It's lovely. There's a mountain retreat. There's a hunting retreat. There's gardens to walk in. There's cafes and blah, 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 blah. You get the picture. But the dream says that it's going to be chopped down and there's going to be bound with a band of iron and bronze. It seems like there's going to be some sort of like remnant. He's going to bound something to keep it protected for later, something like that. And it's going to happen over the period of seven times, which I think is seven years. As you read on, you think it through with me. And this is the decision, verse 17, by the decree of the watchers. The watchers now become watchers. Isn't that interesting? And the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that, watch, this is the purpose of this whole chapter. In order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets it over the lowest of men. There was one thing that God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to always know, and he wants us to know it, and he wanted the people in that kingdom to know too. It's that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. What just happened this week? Are you all frustrated and upset and mad? Good. Should you get educated and participate in the political process as a great citizen of this wonderful country? Yes, of course. But you know how after it doesn't go your way and some snide pastor comes by and says, hey, God's still on the throne. Well, guess what? It's true. So you don't have to fire bricks at the TV, you know, the fake bricks that you get to shoot at Sean Hannity or what's Rachel Maddow. You don't have to get bricks. Here's why. 
You're going to do your best. You're going to participate in the process. You're going to be educated. You're going to make your votes. You're going to ask other people to come alongside just like you should. Vote if you want to. You know, vote in the way that you think is right and is righteous. Yes, and we're praying for that. But when it happens, we say this. But if not, Lord, you're still up there on the throne. You have a purpose and a plan. And I'm submitting to that. And we're submitting to that. And we're going to pray for people and love them and show them your love. Even people, watch. I'm going to get in trouble for this one. Nebuchadnezzar came down and murdered people, folks. He wiped them out. Killed them. Cold-blooded. Wrecks the temple. The, the very core of Jewish society. Rips people out and sets them up there and asks them to take a three-year course in how to change from being Jewish to being Babylonian religion. And God was pursuing him. And I want you to see that. And the reason he was pursuing him, he tells right here. He says, I'm pursuing you because there's one thing I want people to know. But first, you got to know it, Nebuchadnezzar, that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. You need to understand, Nebuchadnezzar, that your kingdom is not by you building it. Anything that you have, any good and perfect gift that comes down from above comes from the Father of lights, James tells us. Every perfect gift. Watch this. And he gives it to whomever he will. Anytime you see giving in the Bible, even though it's in Aramaic, every time you see it, the Lord puts it in there to show you his grace because grace is a gift. So here, and he wants them to know it. But look, he wants you to know it too. You think you're the master of your kingdom. You've got your 401k. You've got plenty of money in the bank. You can shop when you want. You can eat when you want. I'll go to church. I love the things God's doing. Charms me. But God wants you to know that everything you have comes from him, and you're just a steward. I'm just a steward over what God has given me. He sets it over the lowest of men. And this dream, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 18, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you're able. Why is he able and why does he know it? Because the Holy Spirit lives inside you, has come upon you. And then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time. And his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. Now, if you don't see love from Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar there, then I don't know what you're reading. See, that's a picture of the love of God right there. Jesus told us, what is it if you love people who love you? It's nothing. Anybody can do that. 
You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I get along with you, we'll get along together. But what about the people who've done what he's done? Daniel loved him. He loved him. He didn't even want to bring him this news. He was hesitant because he loved him. He had concern or care for him. It must have been. It had to have been. It could only have been love that God gave him for a man who had done despicable things. So he says this. I hope it's your enemies and not you. But because he had to speak the truth, he goes on and he says, The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven and their home, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. It's sort of like when Nathan told David what his prophecy was about. It's you. You're the one who's done the bad deed. It's you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And as much as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, let him graze with the... Uh, beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. They are going to drive you from men. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever. And inasmuch as they give the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. And here's the good prophet and pastor and priest, or pastor, a teacher, I'm sorry, the good prophet, pastor, and teacher. Guess what he does? He gives the summary at the end of the sermon. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor and perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Here we see Daniel showing compassion again and no malice towards this politician who engaged in terrible and evil behavior. I want you to see something. The breaking point for him was this. The Lord was getting him to the place where Nebuchadnezzar would say, heaven rules, not me. And in your kingdom that you're building, or you think you're building, or I think I'm building, you know what the Lord wants us to get, to us, to, get us to a place to where we can say, heaven rules. Heaven rules. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28, at the end of 12 months. Now circle 12 months. <laughs> if I was running the show for God, right after this, I'd have done it. 
Notice God gives him 12 months to think about it. How compassionate and merciful is God? God's like, just please, please, Nebuchadnezzar, please just turn and repent and submit to the authority and the sovereignty of God. Please just do that. So God gives him 12 months and he was walking about the royal palaces of Babylon. And the king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built? Oh boy, here we go again. And isn't that the truth? Have you ever had God ask you to do something and you go, hmm, hmm, I'll do it tomorrow. And then you think about it tomorrow and you go, next week when I see her, I'll apologize. And then she stops coming to church and you stop seeing her or whatever. And before you know it, you've totally forgotten that God said it to you. In other words, when God asks you to do something, just do it. Here he gave him, he, he took 12 months and God was patient. And then he started saying things like this. The longer he got away from this, I built this place. This is a royal dwelling. I did it by my might, my power for the honor of my majesty. While the word, word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. Now time out. You mentioned... 12 months prior when Daniel was giving the interpretation of the dream and you're going to be beastly and all that. I, I bet the king was going like this. Now, how in the world could the Lord make me beastly? I mean, I live in this amazing palace. How am I going to be wet with dew? Eh, let's forget it. But the, while the word 12 months hence was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. This speaks again of sovereignty. He can take away, give. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. Isn't it interesting that he had nature preserves and mountainous areas inside his kingdom? Oh, well. And they shall drive you there, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Again, speaks of his sovereignty and his grace. God is sovereign. You think you got the intellect you got and you're able to do your job because you're some smart chap or lass? He gave it to you to be a great steward. Whatever it is. And that very hour, the word, word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. Watch this. Till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. You're like, man, this is no way. Well, uh, there's a condition called boanthropy, medical diagnosis where people believe they're oxen. There's, I can't say it, but lycanthropy, I think it's called, where people think they're wolves. And... They struggle to get back out of it, and they grow their nails and their hair, and they want to stay outside, and it's, it's a medical diagnosis. So something happened. God did something, and that very hour, it happened. Boom. In other words, God can build up or, or, or advance or take down in a moment's notice. 
And now let's just bring it to you. Maybe your kingdom has been your kingdom. And you've told the Lord what you were going to do. Lord, I'll come to church. I'll do my thing. I'll be charmed with you. I'll even sing of your goodness. But Lord, don't ask me to submit to your sovereignty because I want to be kingdom ruler. I like my life as it is, and I'm going to do what I please. See, here's the thing. The Lord can take our kingdoms and knock them down in a moment's notice. Make us beastly. Give us over to ourselves. Saying, okay, you, you, after being very patient and very merciful and very gracious, okay, you, you don't want to do it my way. Here, do it your way. And I'll take my hands off the wheel and you're going to spiral out of control. Be confused, scared, and you think that you're going to have the answers. But at the end of the time, watch what happens in the next verse. By the way, they don't have all the records of Babylon, lots of them have been destroyed, but for some weird reason, there's a seven-year period at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign where there are no records of any decrees by Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't necessarily tell you that Nebuchadnezzar had this happen to him. The critics would say there's no record of it ever happening, happening. But because there's no record for almost seven years in the Babylonian record, people are like, but Nebuchadnezzar used to give eats like they were candy. Why isn't there any record? You can think about that and study that. But at the end of the time, seven years, look at this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. Watch it. Ready? And my understanding returned to me. See, here's the point. You're never really going to ever understand yourself until you understand who God really is. Not the God who gives us rights but doesn't make us any demands upon us. Not the God who just pats you on your head when you're sinning. Not the God who excuses our sin. Not the God who just leaves us alone until we need him. No, he's the wonder-working God who asks you to submit to his sovereignty And when you do that, even you or me, not Nebuchadnezzar, we just look up to the Lord and we, uh, look, we understand our place in relation to God. And God explains to us who we are when we look up and we repent and we say, here I am, Lord, watch. Understanding comes flooding back. The problem is... We're so prideful. You, you know this. Teach yourself this verse. There's a, it's James 4, 6. It's in the Psalms. It's in Peter. It's in three places of the Bible. If you never remember any other verses of the Bible, and you should remember this one, God gives grace to the humble, but opposes, and the word he uses in the Greek means he fights with the proud. You know Proverbs 6. There's six things 
detestable to the Lord, seven things God hates. What's the first one? Pride. What's pride in essence? It's a stubbornness to say, I'm the master of my domain. I'm the king of my life. You got to be really in tune here. You got to be really honest with yourself. I'm the master. And what you're really saying is, I'm giving me glory more than I'm giving you. I'm going to be here to protect you, God, and your great name as opposed to him protecting you. You understand? And there's this stubbornness. There's this pridefulness that comes in. I relate to that one. And God wants to get it out of our lives because that's the self-life. He wants you to lift up your eyes and recognize that you need a savior and he's the king and you're not. And when you do that, watch, understanding comes flooding back. And I don't know. I can't guarantee, just me, I I can't guarantee that God's going to heal everybody the way in which they want to be healed. But here's what I do know. You have the guarantee of heaven When you submit to the Lord and surrender your life to the the Lord, you get heaven. And in heaven, do you know what it says? There'll never be any more crying, no more pain, no more sickness. Your understanding is going to be perfect or as perfect as it can be. Praise God. Well, he goes on and he says, I bless the Most High, praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. (laughs) When I think about my life before Christ, I mean, I relate to this because I was a beast and can be a beast without the Lord in my life. I mean, I would smile and be real polite to you and just thinking all the time, I can remember, can this person do something for me? Because if they can, I want to be their friends. But if they can't, I'll be polite and get away. Isn't that sick? That's sick. And the Lord has come and put me back together and given me understanding in his heart. And he's doing it for all of you. And why is it? It's not for my glory. It's for the glory of his kingdom. But even then, the Lord says here, reason returned to Nebuchadnezzar. And even then, the Lord restored to him his kingdom, and he restored to Nebuchadnezzar his honor, and he restored the, uh, uh, to the Nebuchadnezzar the splendor of it all, and his counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. <laughs> if you don't think the grace of God is in the Old Testament, what are you reading? Here it is. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. Watch this. And those who walk in pride, he's able to put down. Oh my. 
pride. See, there's two things I think the Lord's getting at, hammering home. We're to submit to the sovereignty of God. He knows best. And the one way that the Lord can grow us in this side of the cross, in Christ-likeness, is when we submit to him and as we become people who are not prideful, we're not stiff-necked, and we're humble. By the way, humble's not walking around saying you're humble. <laughs> Amen is right. One pastor puts it this way, if you think you're humble, you're not. Humility is just thinking less of yourself or being selfless. You're not to denigrate yourself. You ever have Christians that go around, I'm just a horrible, awful wretch, and I, I can't do anything right. Well, in one way, I know what you're saying, except for the Lord has redeemed you and now has given you the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants you to walk in righteousness right? But in order for the grace, the power, the resource of life to come day by day, we live in a place of humility and repentance. So here, let me tell you, in some ways, this has been a tough, uh, are we singing again? If we're singing, come on up. Uh, in some ways, we've been in a tough situation, or I've given you a tough sermon, and you're like, oh my gosh, the guy's heaping guilt upon me. No, that's not it. Not it. It's not it at all. In fact, when I read this, I'm so hopeful I can't stand it. Here's why. Because <laughs> I got a lot of Nebuchadnezzar. And he'll come after you. But you, we have to surrender to his sovereignty. He knows best. Let's pray. After we sing this song, after we, after we pray, after we sing this song, I'm going to turn off the camera. I'll tell you why after. It's not that big a deal. I'd just rather do it off camera, and I'm going to give you a hungry update, okay? Don't, for, don't forget to remind me. <laughs> Lord, thank you for this day, and thank you for these truths. Thank you for this chapter, and we just ask, Lord, that you do a mighty work in our hearts. Help us, Lord to think of the things that are unseen, that are the things that are important, faith, love, and hope, and your plan and kingdom, and not the things that are seen all the time. Lord, help us to stay in a place of humility as we remember what you've done and accomplished in our lives, and as you give us the power of your spirit to live it out in a world that's really hard to love. We need your resource. And Lord, if there's anybody here who's been holding on to something, a hurt, a bitterness, a slight, a, a, an unforgiveness, and it's caused them to act beastly, I pray they'd come up after and we'd pray together and we'd go out of here free by your grace and mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.